Hello, everyone. Welcome back to our podcast. We're glad that you've chosen to spend uh, the next hour or so uh, listening to our discussion. Uh, I'm always uh, a little astonished that uh, we have our loyal base of listeners, but it's very gratifying. Uh, We have a lot of fun in our discussion. And I just wanted to start by reminding that you're welcome to join. You can email us at sabbathschoolfromhome at gmail.com. We keep an eye on that address and and enjoy the questions that our listeners pose for us. Uh, This week we're getting into Deuteronomy. My name's Cameron, and I'm talking to you from Tasmania. G'day, Ken here. And Luke. And I'm Lachlan. I have two comments based on last week's discussion, because I just finished the editor of of it, and um, two things sprung to mind. Uh, One of them was uh, one of my own comments, which was very poorly phrased. And at the time, I had a clear idea in my mind, but the way it came out, I wasn't pleased with at all. And uh, what I said was uh, that it appears from the way the story is told that the objection we have to the Ten Plagues, which is all this mayhem and killing and whatever else, seems also to be God's primary objection also. And, uh, And the Egyptians, of course, are oppressing the Israelites. And God doesn't like this, and so he sends the plagues. It struck me when I was uh, doing the edit that that uh, I failed to communicate exactly what I was trying to say. Obviously, if you hate uh, chaos, if you hate uh, moral chaos, that is, if you hate uh, people lording it over other people, uh, then inflicting more pain and suffering is uh, is not necessarily a good way to express your distaste for pain and suffering. So... But I do think, though, that there is a sense in which God was faced with the situation where the only way out, without overriding uh, the agency of the people involved completely, was was to do something dramatic. That seems to be very much what Pharaoh demanded. Um, so we can then place God in that awkward position. And and it's very clear that, that God, and Locke, the verse you, you shared expressed the sentiment I was trying to say, which is that that God's, when he looked back on the story, didn't remember so much how lovely it was to go around killing cows with hailstones. What he remembered was is that there were people being oppressed and he had to come in and fix that. And he, he doesn't want that to happen again. Mm. In other words, he, 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 doesn't find, he didn't find the experience necessarily enjoyable. No, this is actually harkening back a number of seasons now is reminding me when we looked at the story of Noah and the flood. And at the end of that, God sends a rainbow and says, you know what? Uh, I don't want to do this again. Um, the Exodus, On a worldwide basis. Yeah, the plagues, the Exodus and the plagues, um, that seems also to be a, a not a pattern of God's behavior, but a particular instance that's not that's not regularly repeated. Uh, in subsequent history. So that's, that's another interesting detail. Although it's perhaps an example, at least insofar as he wiped out the chariots in the uh, in the Red Sea, yes. of uh, using water to destroy people again, uh, which is what he said he wouldn't do, which is why we've got to put that um, caveat, that limitation on his promise that he wouldn't do it on a worldwide basis. Mm, you're he right. Perhaps still do it, on a particular basis, that caveat is, I think, Ken, in the in the in God's promise. Yeah. And uh, look, I'm glad you mentioned the flood because our lesson quarterly this week referred to the flood in the context of the the problem we have with 
the Israelites going into cities and killing everyone, men, women, and children. And the lesson mentions at one point that, well, probably many more children died in the flood than were killed by the Israelites. And that, to me, doesn't solve the problem at all. It makes it a lot worse. So um, I found that a bit unusual. The the other thing, though, comes, Ken, to your uh, reference there about the Pharaoh being and his his officers being uh, killed by the the waters of the Red Sea. Pharaoh was very obviously culpable for the mistreatment of the Israelites. And Luke, you commented on last week how how it would have been nice for God to just step in and kill Pharaoh. That might have been a cleaner. I don't. Uh, I don't know that I described that scenario as nice. No, I was going for more just. <laughs> more just, just. Okay. The thought that occurred to me, though, as I was going through the edit, is that um, all the Egyptians were culpable for the mistreatment of the Israelites in the same way that we're all, as our society, we're culpable for the sweatshops and, and people working at... You know, we all benefit from, from a society that excludes people and that marginalises people. And... And we may not be making the the sort of obvious choices. We may not be the person who makes the highest level policy decisions, but we're responsible for the way we meet and greet those around us, for the way we dispose of our income, for the priorities we set in our own life. And we definitely benefit from the mistreatment of others. Cam, I got a, I got a really interesting observation to slot in on that, um, which is just, you know, uh, recent eras there's been re- recent times there's been plenty of reason to to um, ponder the nature of conspiracy theories and for me one of the reasons that a lot of conspiracy theories strike me as being very unlikely to be true is for how fantastically interesting they are they're very dramatic they make great stories which i think is part of the reason why they attract a lot of people um, and it says a lot about my brain and the way it's fundamentally broken that it does the opposite thing to me. But that's a that's a that's a, a side track. But the reason that it the reason that I find them implausible because they're interesting and fascinating, and they have they have tremendously uh, evil villains, all of them, um, is is that my observation of evil in the real world is that it's far more boring than that. It's far more mundane. It is exactly what you described. It's it's a large number of people ignoring the injustice on which their comforts and conveniences are built. Hmm. It's not anyone going out there determined to cause great suffering and misery. It's laziness and apathy and, and uh, willful ignorance um, and not at all bad intentions. It's, it's hmm. genuinely decent people benefiting from injustice and not being bothered to do anything about it. To me, that's that seems to be the greatest source of evil in the world. And most evil in the world is like that. Most of it can be drawn back to people just, you know, one person in a position of power who just couldn't be bothered to do their job very well hmm. can cause hmm. so much misery and suffering. They don't have to be a devil worshipper. They don't have to be an evil genius. Hmm. They just have to be a, a bit lazy and selfish. Just a little bit. Not even hmm. a lot. You know, so I, I think what you say about the Egyptians is is very fair. 
Um, and also interesting to know in the context, that as we read last week, there were a large portion of Egyptians that ended up going with the Israelites. And of course, what, what God mandates for the Israelites is, very, is not, is not um, large government-level uh, prohibitions against um, mistreatments of foreigners. It's very local. You in your own house. Must look after foreigners, your own your own servants and your own slaves. Um, on on the Sabbath was the commandment that, that that was the verse we referred to. I think that well before we finish that point, I, I think that's an important counterpoint to the point that you and Luke make, Cam, and that is, in one sense, there is nothing I can do about the fact that I, as an individual, was born into this culture, and uh, as one individual, there's little I can do uh, to change it, uh, to change the whole system. Uh, yes, I can be a Greta, what's her name? Thunberg. Uh, yeah, Thunberg. Thunberg, um, Thunberg. Uh, or, or a, you know, or, or a Grace Tame, uh, um, and draw attention to uh, these injustices, um, and and in a sense gain an element of or use what's almost an element of celebrity um, to uh, promote a particular cause and make changes in that way. Uh, but it still remains the fact that the, the whole system is um, uh, has a great deal of inertia, yeah. uh, that, that, that as one individual I, I have very little power over. But what I can do is act justly, within my sphere of influence. Mm. Um, and at least then within that sphere of influence, uh, there can be uh, some change. And and Ken, there's lots of dimensions to that. Uh, one of them is, I think it's a good point, people like Greta rely on, they, they don't make a difference to the world. They are most effective when they empower everyday normal people to make small changes, which add up to big to a big change. That's a good point too. Yeah. So, uh, uh, so the way we distribute information can have, be really significant. Um, that's not the point I was going to make. The point I was going to make is this: they can. If you have, uh, if you're playing pool and you've got two balls lined up and you hit the first with the cue and it strikes the second ball, a very small deviation in the angle of that first ball results in quite a large deviation in the second one. If you line up three balls in a row and you hit the first one, any deviation in the in the angle of the with which you strike the first ball um, makes quite a, a difference to the spot on which it impacts the second ball, which makes a huge difference to its trajectory. And if you if you have a dozen pool balls in a row that are uh, thirty centimeters apart and you strike the first one, uh, a deviation in the order of a width of an atom. In your first strike, could make the difference between the final ball going to the left or to the right. So, yeah. so we are all of us involved in chains of causality, and we we don't know how effective what we do could be. Uh, there's also um, I'd like to question to the statement, which is obviously true. So I don't know why I'm questioning it, but the statement that none of us are capable on our own of of changing the world. Uh, I've been stressed at work a bit. Uh, over the last few years and the assistant principal has said to me Cameron you need to focus on the things 
over which you have control and put your emotional energy into those and stress less about the things over which you have no control that you can't change. And my response is, how do you know you can't change it unless you try? (laughs) And there's a lot of people who say, oh, well, I can't change that. Uh, And, well, you don't know, do you? And, And I think that a life spent trying to change things that are too large for us to change even if it, you fail in, in your endeavour, is a, is a good life to live. Well, there's a challenge. Yeah, I, I don't know exactly um, how we got to there from where we were, but let's pause that discussion and jump into Deuteronomy. We've got to get through three chapters. We've been going we're, for about ten gonna, minutes. Yeah, we're not going to get through all three chapters in, in great detail. Uh, so we'd be better to pick some little bits out. And... Maybe just as a little warm-up, I've noticed something really... Just a just a fun little pattern in Chapter 2 of Deuteronomy. Um, the the author of Deuteronomy, and, and let's say Moses for the sake of this discussion, because it's definitely attributed to Moses as a, as a sermon of Moses to the uh, Israelites. As does, it say, in, does it say that Moses wrote it down, though, Locke? It says it was Moses' well, words. It says it was Moses' words. Deuteronomy 1 starts, These are the sermons Moses preached to all Israel when they were east of the Jordan River. So, yes, he may not have written it down. But in any case, in chapter 2, a remarkable um, double-up of parenthetical information is given. So I'm focusing on chapter 2, verse 10, and then an almost identical phrasing down in verse 20. So this is where... um, at this point in the story, and we may wish to go back a little bit to chapter one, but at this point in the story, uh, Moses has cut through, already cut past the the forty years of wandering, or the first thirty eight of those years, and is is zeroing in onto the the events leading up to the entry into the promised land, um, and is describing the Lord is leading them don't you know, through these different lands. Now you've been wandering in the wilderness, but now you're going to go to where I'm going to send you, and you're going through the land of Moab, but the Lord warned us, don't bother the Moabites, the descendants of Lot, or start a war with them. I've given them Ar as their property, and I will not give you any of their land. And this, this happens over and over again. But in verse 10, and in in the New Living Translation, it's actually written, it's got parenthetical brackets around it, verse 10 to 12. A race of giants called the Emites had once lived in the area of Ar. They were as strong and numerous and tall as the Anakites, another race of giants. Both the Emites and the Anakites are also known as the Raphaites, <laughs> although the Moabites call them Emites. And the, and the point the point of this is is not incredibly clear, other than to say that there were giants in the land of various names, but they were driven out and displaced by the descendants of Esau. So then you read down a little further and you get to verse twenty, uh, another parenthetical statement. That area was once considered the land of the Raphaites, who had lived there, though the Ammonites called them Zamzumites. <laughs> They were also as strong and numerous and tall as the Anakites. So the the it's it's repeated there almost the same. In this time, it's not the descendants of Lot, but the descendants of Esau. Luck, it's a, there's a sorry, Luck, to interrupt. There's a a, a point there though in these uh, parenthetical insertions, which is interesting. Who is it that gave this land to the descendants of Lot and to the descendants of Esau? Yeah, uh, the Lord. Yeah, so. So the, I mean, this would this it, it's it, atypically for for people at that time, 
the Israelites did not consider their God to be the God of them only, mm. of their of their people only. And there's that great story, isn't there, when, um, is it Elisha with Naaman? And Naaman comes to Elisha and um, Naaman wants to carry back a donkey full of, uh, donkey load of, full of um, dirt so that he can worship the God of Israel because he needs to take some, he needs to take some of the land back with him because <laughs> gods have their own territory. And if you want to worship that God, you just need some of the dirt. People had a very local view of the gods, but, uh, but God through Moses is saying to the people here, no, 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 I, I gave that land to the descendants of Lot and to the descendants of Esau. It's mm. theirs. And there's another point being made here as well, I think. Uh, I haven't had a chance to develop this idea very much, but why was it that the Israelites ended up wandering that 40 years in the wilderness? If you, if you recall, the story is told in a condensed form in Deuteronomy 1. The spies are sent into the land because it didn't take them 40 years to get there. It wasn't a journey of that distance. They, they got to the promised land relatively quickly after the exodus. Spies were sent into the land. Joshua and Caleb come back with a, with a fairly excited report saying the Lord will give us victory. Let's go. The other spies stir up dissent. And the, the, the cause of the dissent, the cause of the upset, are the giants. So I'm now reading from Deuteronomy 1 verse uh, 28 or, or 27 or 28. Um, the, how can we go up? We're trapped in a dead end. Our brothers took all the wind out of our sails, telling us the people are bigger and stronger than we are. Their cities are huge. Their defense is massive. We even saw Anakite giants there. So it was the, it was the, the seeing of the giants that scared them away. And I, I think I'm wondering, I'm wondering in chapter two, when the, the story of Moses here telling the story, is he perhaps trying to point out how foolish their objection to God's plan was. Because Moses could be saying here, listen, if you'd stopped to think about it, you would have realized that God had already given the descendants of Esau victory over these giants, who were known by many names. And he'd already given, um, you know, the, the people in the land of Lot. And, and it repeats that for emphasis to kind of say, you can be confident in this, what is about to unfold in your future. You can be confident that the Lord is going to give you victory over these giants also. Hmm. I like that lock. Made me think of the story of David and Goliath. Uh, <laughs> where again where again the height, the physical size of, of Goliath. Uh, yeah. you know, is is a very significant part of the story. And of course Saul was was head and shoulders above all of Israel. So uh it's very discriminatory against short yeah, people though, isn't it? It it well <laughs> yeah. That's right. Um, the message has some extra detail that's quite amusing. I, I presume this is coming from from some of the meaning inherent in these names. Um, after the word, after the Emites, the message has in brackets monsters. And after the Rephaites, the message puts in brackets ghosts. So so these, these names of these giants uh, appear to be carrying some sort of sense of you know like if you were saying we can't go into that land because it's full of zombies yeah like there's, there's a there's a an invocation of an intrinsic fear factor of the of the different and other and monstrous and yet god is still reminding them i, I have victory over that like zombies feature very strongly in my maths exams because i <laughs> maths in an effort in a completely futile effort to convince students that maths is useful 
Um, they take problems, and the, and the reason why it's futile is that the maths the students are learning when they're 13 or 14 years old is not the maths which is useful. It's the maths you need to learn so that you can then learn the useful maths like it's a stepping stone very much. But in order to make it feel useful, they always put in these long convoluted word questions. John has a flock of sheep and they increase by 10% each year, but he kills 100 of them, for, sends them to the butchers. Uh, um, uh, after five years, how many sheep does he have? That doesn't succeed in helping the students feel that maths is useful. So whenever I um, am in, in the process of revising a test, I always replace as many nouns as I can with zombies. So they have a, they have a flock of zombies. Um, this... I, thought, I thought you were going to say that every year he, he increases his fold by 10%, but he sends 300 sheep off to the zombies. Well, that's a good, that's a good idea too, but my students are come to expect it now. So. You could have zombie sheep. Well, yeah, well, yes. or... You could just one day substitute zombies for, what was it here in verse 20? The Zamzamites. The Zamzamites, exactly. Exactly right. Have we ever spoken, there's no segue into this, it's just a complete redirection of the discussion. Um, have we ever spoken... Probably a good call, Ken. About, <laughs> ...about natural justice on this podcast? No. But there is a section here that describes in Deuteronomy one that describes the legal system. Moses yes, there is. On the... And I wonder whether there might be something worth discussing there. Yeah, I think there might be. All right, well let's do that then. I'll I'll lead out. Good, 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 good. Um, what what's interesting here, and I is um the appointment of the leaders in in Deuteronomy chapter one verses nine through to eighteen, um. Uh, and uh, I don't know. Should we read that? Okay. Uh, well, I'll, I'll read a couple and then you carry on. At that time, I said to you, you are too heavy a burden for me to carry alone. The Lord your God has increased your numbers so that today you are as many as the stars in the sky. May the Lord, the God of your fathers, increase you a thousand times and bless you as he has promised. But how can I bear your problems and your burdens and your disputes all by myself? Choose some wise understanding and respected men from each of your tribes and I will set them over you. You answered me, what you propose to do is good. So I took the leading men of your tribes, wise and respected men, and appointed them to have authority over you as commanders of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, of of tens, and as tribal officials. And I charged your judges at that time, hear the disputes between your brothers and judge fairly, whether the case is between brother Israelites or between one of them and an alien. Hmm. Do not show partiality in judging. Hear both small and great alike. Do not be afraid of any man, for judgment belongs to God. Bring me any case too hard for you, and I will hear it. And at that time, I told you everything you were to do. Hmm. So it's an interesting... Uh, I, I, have a, I have an interest in uh, the way that a person who is charged with uh, judging in our society should approach the task. Um, and uh, I think it's in, as a starting point I think it's interesting that here in verse 9 uh, Moses says at that time I said to you you are too heavy a burden for me to carry alone now um, uh, my recollection is and I think it's in Leviticus is it uh, or is it in any event there's another reference to this very incident and it wasn't that Moses said you are too heavy a burden for me to carry alone. It was that his father-in-law came to him and said, 
uh, this job's too big for you. Mm, uh, yeah. So uh, Moses takes the credit here in any event. He's the author of Deuteronomy. <laughs> so, so he's going to take... I, I know he's the author of the other book in which the story's told as well, but he's going to take the credit in this case. Which, uh, for, but isn't, there, so isn't it in Deuteronomy, Ken, that Moses is described as the most humble man that ever lived, or is that numbers? <laughs> I'm not sure. It's also in one of Moses' works. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, in any event, um, uh, he, he, it's this it's this big job. So, what he seeks to do is to uh, delegate the responsibility for resolving disputes. Mm. Um, and I think there's some interesting parts about it. Um, one of the one of the interesting things is what are you looking for in somebody who you are going to uh, give that responsibility. Well, you're looking for people who are part of the community, men of your tribes. Um, you're looking for wise and respected people. Um, and then you need to invest them with authority to resolve the disputes. So they're some of the things that we see in our legal system now. Mm. Um, uh, we try to appoint people from within the community, but from diverse um, uh uh, parts of our community. Um, uh, we want them to uh, be knowledgeable people. We want them to uh, be wise people. Uh, they need to have respect if they are to be able to exercise the authority which is invested in them. Mm. Um, so I think that's interesting. We have the first example of uh, a uh, an appeal structure. Um, so we have uh, people with authority over, uh, we have tribal officials and their authorities over tens and over fifties and over hundreds and over thousands. Um, uh, and, uh, and here's the really interesting thing from my perspective. Um, hear the disputes between your brothers and judge fairly whether the case is between brother Israelites or between one of them and an alien. And that's the example which then is followed by the principle do not show partiality in judging. Here, both small and great alike. Um, and one mm. of the first principles... People often talk about natural justice. And what people often mean by the word natural justice is what seems fair to me, uh, the outcome that seems fair to me. Uh, the law of our land, and indeed of um, uh, most common law countries... Uh, doesn't mean that when it says natural justice. What it means is what the Americans call due process um, or uh, procedural fairness. Uh, so that um, it's not as concerned about the substantive outcome because inevitably the substantive outcome uh, can be something about which reasonable minds will differ. Uh, but what it is concerned about is that the way the dispute is resolved is fair. Uh, and the first principle of fairness in the way of resolving the dispute is that you must have a disinterested, not an uninterested, but a disinterested decision maker. Uh, one who does not have a preconceived idea about who should win. Ken. Ken, there's um, a video I show my class each year, and it's it's one of the John Oliver videos. 
for those of our listeners unfamiliar with John Oliver, he uh, is a very successful journalist in the sense that he runs a a um, comedy segment, a comedy show, where he picks as his topics, you know, such you know, um, such great you know comedic gold mines such as the death penalty or infrastructure in the United States or predatory lending <laughs> or and he succeeds in making this you know sort of popular to the man- masses one of the one of the mechanisms he uses is the periodic interjection of of fairly cr- crude humor which I, I don't find necessary to bring the topic alive but um so and there's a fair bit of swearing but in terms of an effort to shine a spotlight on places where injustice is being done and to bring it into the public discourse he's succeeded very very well and uh, one of the ones he does which i show my students is on predatory lending and um and he talks about the payday loan industry in the united states and there are more payday loan outlets than there are mcdonald's in the united states i think wow and but one of the one of the things he he plays an excerpt from um, a uh, place where a law was going to be introduced limiting the the scope of payday loan companies to charge exorbitant interest rates and fees on their customers, and there's a there's a, a senator in one of the I think it's Texas um, defending the payday loan industry, and a lady stands up and has next speech after him. She says, "Do you?" Um, do you deny that you yourself own four payday loan companies? <sighs> don't don't you know the meaning of of the term uh, conflict of interest? And it cuts back to John Oliver, and he says, "Now isn't that great? She's a, she's a wonderful hero. This lady standing up. You might be disappointed to learn that four weeks after making that speech, she quit her job in Parliament and became a lobbyist for the payday loan industry." <laughs> So, yeah. Unfortunately, that's not an uncommon story. Um, it's, uh, uh, it arises uh, in uh, gambling uh, and it arises in the tobacco industry. Mm. Uh, it, uh, there are examples of it everywhere. Well, even when it comes to uh, one of the current sort of political hot potatoes in Australia, which is, which is energy supply and and you yeah. know resources like coal and gas it, it the same sort of situation right where the decision makers are not always as disinterested as we perhaps would like yeah and and, and of great concern uh i think given the importance of information uh is the fact that perhaps media is not as disinterested mm. as uh, it ought to be. Yeah. Ken, um, two things jumped out at me as you read that passage. One is the the injunction that they were to attend to matters great and small. Mm. Um, I think that that is fantastic. It's really good. Because, and this is something you notice when you have kids, that there are disputes that are not important, but which are very important <laughs> to them. <laughs> Can, can I give you the classic example of that, Cam? Yeah. I, I have, I have, I have six wonderful children. The youngest of whom is shortly turning twenty. Um, uh, but uh, uh, when they were all at home, uh, we had an iconic Mitsubishi Delica van with eight seats in it, uh, and 
Um, uh, as far as I was concerned, the least comfortable seat in that van was what was known as the fold-out seat. Uh, it was the seat right next to the sliding door, um, uh, which you would fold up um, to get in, <laughs> and then you'd have to fold it down to sit down. Um, uh, and uh, I thought that that was the most... Unco- it lay back on an uncomfortable angle. It was wobbly. It was just... I, I couldn't imagine a, a less comfortable seat in the van. But that seat was the prize seat in the van. And there were dispute after dispute after dispute about, no, I got out there first. No, but I had my things on the seat first. And so, so look, I mean, uh, love your kids. Love your kids um, <laughs> from the bottom of my heart. But that one always confused me. Uh, <laughs> That's right. And hopping in a lift, who gets to press the button? Uh, uh, it'd be fun i know michael mcintyre does uh, does a comedy routine on this but it'd be fun to film some adults having the same sort of disputes you know when they're entering (laughs) a lift or crossing the road and pressing the button but i like the injunction to attend to matters great and small um Mm. and because great and small to who to whom to whom is it great and small i was going to say when god says to the judges when moses says to the judges attend to matters great and small what he's saying is um, attend to the things which seem small to you. Can I say that's a real challenge to somebody charged with making decisions about those things great and small? Because I, I would confess um, that even recently uh, there have been days when I have been so grumpy because <laughs> my, my approach has been, forgive me, uh, where am I going to get that hour of my life back? Um, mm. <laughs> you have brought mm. this dispute to me for resolution. Why are you even fighting about it? It does not matter. Like, um, mowing, like mowing the lawn, Ken. There was one about mowing the lawn, wasn't there, on a golf course? Oh, uh, there was one about... Yes, yeah. there was one on the golf... A, a dispute about the length of the grass on the golf course. But um, <laughs> uh, in any event... Um, and, and look, I appreciate you raising that point, Cameron, because, uh, it makes me say, check your attitude before you walk through the door. Um, well, you're right. You're right. And the, I think one of the interesting takeaways from that observation is that you don't have to be a, a magistrate to have, to have that caution be a valuable reminder. As you pointed out, Cam, uh, being a parent of children, being a teacher at school, there's probably many contexts where all sorts of people interface with this reality that there are things which seem very small in my own assessment, but which are not small to some of the people involved. And it's probably quite a good admonition to pay attention. Yeah. The other thought I had, Ken, was the fact that Moses said to choose men. That was, that was one of the, that was one of the, you, you, you talked about what were the qualities that, that, that these people were to have, or one of them was that they were male. And then then I checked myself because I remembered the story of Deborah and I knew that she was a prophetess, but my memory was she also functioned as a judge. As a judge. And I went and read the story and in Judges 4 it says, at that time Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of, of Lapidoth, was leading Israel. She held court under the palm of Deborah. 
between Ramar and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites came to her to have their disputes decided. Hmm. Well, it's interesting. I was going to pick up on this this bit at the end of verse 17. Um, you know, the deci- don't be afraid of anyone's anger for the decision you make is God's decision. Bring me any cases that are too difficult for you and I will handle them. That's what Moses says. Now, Cam, when you describe Deborah as leading Israel and as resolving disputes under her palm tree, um, that sounds very much as if not only is she one of these good and respected and wise leaders but in fact she is the she's the high court she's she's moses's successor yeah that's a really interesting observation i'd not i'd not i mean i know there's a book of the bible called the called judges and i knew that you know i knew that it talks about in the time when judge what what does it start at the book of judges i'm gonna have to turn to it now so that i can quote it no, it's not even at the start of Judges. I'm sorry, the phrase I'm looking for... <laughs> the phrase I'm looking for is in the is in the book of Ruth. Ah, yes. That's where I'm looking for it. In the days when the judges ruled, there was... In the days when the judges ruled, there was famine in the land. That's right, in the days when the judges ruled. That's the phrase that I have. That's it. That's how the story of Ruth starts. Yeah, well, though, that that is clearly referring to this system that is set up or that is referred to here in Deuteronomy 1. The, the other thing that's interesting is that the, 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 the judging has to be uh, according to uh, some objective standard. Um, so there has to be a law against which the dispute is resolved. And you can see a hint of that uh, in the last verse, verse 18, and at that time I told you everything you were to do. So there was clearly up front um, an articulated framework within which the disputes were to be resolved. Oh, that's a good detail. Another nice detail is uh, that uh, they were charged to judge fairly, regardless of whether or not the two parties were both Israelites or whether one of them was an Israelite or a foreigner. So foreigners, foreigners had equal rights in their judicial system. There's another detail here in Deuteronomy 1 that jumped out at me. I was browsing it in the message. This is moving on a little, Ken, from from your observation there. But verse 37. uh, So picking up, what's happened is Moses is, as I said earlier, fast forwarding through some of this history. And he's, he's here giving the story. The spies have come back and and the Israelites have been afraid of these giants. And in verse 29, Moses says, I tried to relieve your fears. And he says, don't be terrified of them anyway. um, But in verse 34, when God heard what you said, he exploded in anger. He swore not a single person of this evil generation is going to get so much as a look at the good land that I promised to give your parents. No one except for Caleb and Joshua. And then in verse 37, (laughs) Moses says, but I also got it because of you. God's anger spilled over onto me. He said, you aren't getting in either. Your assistant, Joshua, son of Nun, will go in. Build up his courage. Now, that's a slight revision, isn't it? Of the the real story. (laughs) Again, here we get an example of perhaps author's license. Um... Uh, Ken, it's quite significant. One of the things, uh, one of the uh, criticisms of uh, the style of the Old Testament, because it doesn't feel like a modern history or a modern novel 
is the fact that things are repeated. So many, you get all these repetitions. And one of the, one of the, um, you know, what I'm thinking of is, you know, Abraham took his son, Isaac, his only son, the son of his old age. And I'm extemporizing a little bit. And you think, yeah, all right, well, we've got, we've got the point. Um, But one of the things that, I was taught in my subject that I've referred to previously, uh, the Bible as literature, which I did with Daniel Renner at Avondale, is he said when when something is rep- um, repeated, you should always go back and check because a lot of nuances m- meaning is encoded by the author into exactly what we're describing. A, a lot of the detail, a lot of the, the juicy bits and the human psychology and the interest is in there in the way it's retold. And the, the real classic one is the golden calf, where it specifically mentions that Aaron melted the gold and shaped it with his hands. And you think, well, <laughs> what, was he going to use his feet? Um, like, what's the point of that? But then you get to the point where Aaron retells the story, and the way he tells it is, I threw this gold in the fire, and out came a cow. <laughs> 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 <Yes. laughs> <laughs> and really, if we're honest about those sort of things, uh, isn't that what we do all the time? Uh, look, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll I'll put my hand up to it. Yeah. Uh, I, I, in retelling the story, I will give enough of my uh, mistake and 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 enough of you know my human failings to 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 make me appear sufficiently humble. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but I'm going to leave out the detail that gives me a malevolent air. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I think, I think poor old Moses is falling slightly into that trap here. Um, he, the way, and I, I deliberately read it from the message there just because the language is so, uh, so vivid. <laughs> and, and yet, in a sense, it is nonetheless true because mm. he, was kept out because he struck the rock rather than speak to it. Yes. Um, uh, he struck the rock because of his own reaction and his own thing. anger. Yeah. But that anger was very much his response <laughs> and a not unjustified response well, Ken, to the conduct of the Israelites. Ken, <laughs> just hang on. Um, just to throw a, a, a spanner in the works. Locke, you've just told us that God responds in anger. Well, I didn't. I didn't tell you that. I, I just read what Moses declared. Yeah. Okay. Well. Okay. Well, we, we've got to wonder a bit about his trustworthiness, given the, given what we've seen here. I well, well, I wonder. What, what does it say in verse thirty-four? Deuteronomy one, verse thirty-four. Let's just have a brief look in a in a less um, less floral translation. Was what I was going to say. A, a translation that's a little bit more somber. Yeah. Here, I'll re- I'll turn to my black leather bound. New American Standard Bible. It's about as dry as it's possible to get. Um, Deuteronomy 1, verse 34. Then the Lord heard the sound of your words, and he was angry and took an oath. Ah, well, that doesn't help us very much. No, he was still angry. (laughs) He solemnly swore. Now, I I know that by the phrase swore, it means to take an oath. But it does have other connotations, <laughs> doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Let's guess it. it has some connotations, Ken, but I think the way we swear now... It's not solemn we enough. Well, but it does have its roots in, in the other meaning of the word swear, to swear or not. Yeah. 
they are oaths. Mm. Um, yeah. Still. Yeah. They're just um, they're not very meaningful ones most of the time. <laughs> no. Yeah. Um, there's a great excerpt from Three Men in a Boat uh, about uh, swearing oaths, but uh, we're running out of time, and uh, mm. it's definitely leading us off off topic. Uh, Locke, I think it's probably almost time to wrap up. Our last episode was a bit of a, a bumper episode, um, and I think we're over forty minutes now. So shall we? Yeah, I think forty-seven. We, I think we should wrap it up. Uh, we've we've had a good one. Yeah, um, we are very interested, as I said at the start, in the thoughts of our listeners and interested to know if, if there's something in here uh, that you've noticed, which we've missed, which is almost certainly true. Uh, so uh, feel free to contact us. Feel free also to share this podcast with anyone that you think might enjoy it. And uh, we look forward to you joining us next week. And we're looking forward to this book, Deuteronomy. It's not a book that I've, I've studied uh, in depth Certainly, I don't think I've ever read through it sequentially. Um, it seems to be one of those books that I've only ever referred to piecewise. So uh, hopefully some lots of fun ideas to come.